this is Kate Scalsa, and I'm the author of Luminary, A Magical Guide to Self-Care. I made Luminary because I wanted to talk to some of the most interesting, magical people I know about some tools that help us navigate the complexities of this ongoing process of life. And that's what you're going to hear in these episodes, me talking with magical people about these tools and what they can bring to our lives. These interviews were originally recorded as a series on Instagram Live, so you'll get our full authenticity and even some charming glitches. I hope these conversations help you. And if you want more, I hope you'll find your way to a copy of Luminary. You can start that journey by finding my book on my website, kateskelsa.com. That's K-A-T-E-S-C-E-L-S-A.com. Hello. Hello, children. Today we're going to be talking about how capitalism crushes our creative spirits. And this book. Huh? And this book. And we have a special guest today. Let me see if I can get her... Yes. We did it. It's happening. <laughs> yes. We did it. It's always such a victory when it works. Oh my God. Hi, Beth. Hi, Kate. It's so nice to see you. So nice to see you. Oh my gosh. Um, thank you so much for doing this. It is my pleasure, my honor. Congratulations on this beautiful book you've written. Thank you so much. Um, well, I'll do a little formal intro before I dive in. Um, so today we are going to be talking about a bunch of things, but in the context of the fact that my book, Luminary, A Magical Guide to Self-Care, is coming out November 8th. Um, and uh, as uh, part of this book, I did, thank you, thank you. I got to do um, a bunch of interviews with some of my favorite people to uh, talk about some of my favorite topics. And my conversation with Beth um, was one of my favorites and just um, kind of presents my thesis of the whole book. We'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm too excited. Let me, it's let me. Really read. exciting. <laughs> the technology still blows my mind. I'm a millennial and grew up before the internet. Yeah, same. <laughs> we both are like, look at this working. It's a miracle. <laughs> okay, so just to let people know who Beth is, Beth Pickens is a Los Angeles based consultant for artists and arts organizations. She is the art of Make Your Art No Matter What, this gorgeous book, which you must purchase. And uh, Pickens earned her master's degree in counseling psychology from the University of Missouri. Listen to her podcast, Mind Your Practice, and join her artist subscription service, Homework Club. Um, my notes for, like, what I want to talk to you about look so crazy because <laughs> this is really, yeah, the thesis of my book is trying to talk about how we can take these beautiful mystical practices and apply them to real life and not just let them be sort of these fantastical, you know, magical things that they are then the ceremonies that we do on the moons and all that good stuff. But then when it comes down to actually 
dealing with mental health and uh, in the case of this chapter where we talked, dealing with your career, how do we apply all of this beautiful stuff and actually use it to help us? So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about how you became uh, a consultant and a kind of coach for artists and arts organizations and like yeah, that, your too. own career path. Cause it's so fascinating to me. Yeah. My career path is very um, unplanned happenstance mm-hmm. with none of it was pre-planned, but what happened was um, I, w- I got my master's degree in counseling psychology while I was working full time at a university um, in a women's center. I had a job at the University of Missouri Women's Center where I had gone to undergrad. And because I got my bachelor's degree in English, I was like, oh shit, how do you get a job? What do I do? <laughs> so I, I thought I should get a master's degree in something that's very practical, tactical. Mm-hmm. And I always, I worked around a ton of therapists. I love therapy. I was very naturally therapeutically inclined for a lot of reasons. So I earned my master's degree while I was working full time. But I had a sense that what I wanted was to be around a huge queer community, particularly artists, a queer artist community. So after I finished grad school, I moved to San Francisco and started working almost immediately full-time in the arts, uh, for and with artists in a lot of different capacities. And then about 12 years ago, I decided to start this consulting practice that integrates my counseling background with all of my experience working in the arts. And I see it as this sort of symbiotic relationship to artists. Like I need their art to live. So I try to help as many artists as possible, make their work and help it get in the world so that we can have this like balanced reciprocity, this mutual mutuality of, I need your art. So I need you to go make it. What can I do to help right. you go make it? Right. <laughs> what can I say to you that will make that possible? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love hearing about that career path that you've had, because for me, it really kind of models some of the things that we have talked about, which is that you probably can't predict where your career is going to go and and what where it will end up might be an idea that's much better than sort of what you could have come up with, especially as a senior in high school or even in college trying to pick a major this idea that we're supposed to be able to know what that career path is going to look like is so limiting yes yes I mean my best laid plans for myself at 17 18 they were just so narrow because I didn't know very much I just had such a limited understanding of who I was and what life could be and I still do at 43 like who knows what I'll want 20 years from now because I'll keep growing and changing but it's so funny to me that that our our educational system is like all right when you're 18 pick a pipeline and that's what you're gonna do because number one that makes no sense and number two that's not what happens for a lot of people right So many people get their bachelor's degree in something that they then never really revisit because that's what they knew to do or had to do or had access to at the time if they went to college. And it then creates a situation in which you're maybe forced into being very single-minded about something. And rather than dealing with the reality of the moment, which is take a lot of stuff that interests you, create a really well-rounded program for yourself or you know if you're not going to college try a lot of things like read about a lot of things rather than this very single-minded idea of a path and of success because we would be so much better served 
by exposing ourselves to lots of different things that we're interested in rather than feeling like that's somehow not focusing. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and you, the, when I studied career counseling as part of my master's degree, it was so fascinating because I thought career counseling was going to be really boring. I was like, I don't freaking care about talking to people about their jobs. And actually it's the right. most interesting in the, thing in the world. Cause I had this feminist career counseling psychologist as an instructor who said, like, when you help people discover what their working paths can be, you restore their dreams to them. Because for so many people, the world of work is really confusing, confounding, dehumanizing, miserable, because work is that for most people. Right. But work can be so much bigger than just like what we're doing for our jobs, what we do for money, which of course, I work with artists and artists have all kinds of jobs to pay money so that they can make their work, which maybe pays, maybe doesn't pay, but it's the thing that gives them their entire life. Right. Um, and I think, you know, what really worries me is, I, and I think that we're all influenced by this, but especially young people, the combination of the narrative they're sold in school of a certain kind of achievement that's about, you know, uh, potentially like AP classes, honor roll, a certain kind of college that you're getting into, a certain kind of career. And then combine that with uh, capitalism as one big reality TV competition show where, you know, I just watched, we just watched um, Making the Cut, that sort of like spinoff of oh, yes. Runway. And I keep thinking that the the way people talk on those shows is going to change. And But then it's always the same. It's always, you know, I gave up everything to be here and I have to win this to prove that every choice I made in my life was correct. And this will justify the fact that I left my dying mother at home. I'm like, Oh, no. <laughs> no, Americans are poison. That's why Great British Bake Off is the only good reality show, because you don't win anything. It's the only, <laughs> and that's my, I mean, I just keep coming back to that idea of the Great British Bake Off, right? It's like, well, you won a, a cute cake stand, your family yeah, came for and a ju- You just pride. Yeah, yeah just, pride. you know, you got to have fun. You met some nice people. <laughs> And it's so interesting the way they talk about jobs on that show, which is very different from Americans' constraints of work and career. It's just like, oh, so-and-so is this great home baker, and he works at the grocery store, and this person has a home health aide. It's like this non-shaming way of, like, people just have jobs, but this is the thing they love. It's well, so and they, different. Like American cooking shows would never be framed that way. No. And I know that people are, I know that like the producers on the American shows are coaching them to talk that way. Yeah. But that to me, it's just so indicative of that capitalist. I will see how many times I can say capitalism in this conversation because it, this is like, this is the thing that really gets me riled up. That, that capitalism thrives on us thinking not only is there one kind of success there is one spot everyone's vying for it and if you don't get it you may as well be dead you know throw when those people leave those shows i'm like do they walk into a pit of lions when they walk out right totally they may as well be dead and all of their choices are um invalidated and Mm -hmm. they shouldn't have bothered and we can know that this idea of success isn't isn't true because you know so often the person who wins 
we never, it's not like we ever hear from them again. It's not like that's right. a guaranteed path towards happiness. I mean, so when you yeah. and I spoke before, one thing I found really interesting is because you've worked with so many different kinds of artists and people at all different points in their career, you've gotten to see close up something that I don't think a lot of people get to see, which is people who have huge success. Mm-hmm. It does not do for them what the narrative suggests it might. Yeah. Yeah. Things on the outside don't change how we feel about ourselves on the inside. Outside Mm -hmm. jobs don't fix inside jobs. And so what I experience with artists is that it's much harder. The hard thing to do is not to get the successful thing, a grant, a residency, a solo show, a publisher, The hard thing is when you get the thing you wanted to actually be present for it and surrender to it and enjoy it. Because when we, when we sort of put these goalposts on, well, once I get this thing, once I get into this, or once I have this achievement, I'll feel differently. We feel differently for a very brief period of time. And then we return to wherever was our set point beforehand. Right. The outside doesn't change how we feel on the inside. And so a lot of artists, when they have whatever they consider are markers of success, they can feel really, they have a a lot of existential questions when they notice, like, I don't feel better, or I still feel like I haven't made it, or I'm not enough of something, which just tells me it's two different things. It's like pursuing our professional goals while also dealing with our spiritual interiors. They're kind of two different tasks that are both necessary, but they do different things. Right. Well, there's also something there around, I think, an idea that an outside outside validation will bring some sort of ease to your work process that, you know, if you're trying to be a published writer, publishing a book will, then you'll sort of, you'll be, um, you'll be now named, you know, capital W writer, the world knows you're a writer and that somehow will make the writing the next book easier the process of getting that next book published easier. And it certainly hasn't in my experience. No, not in my, not in my publishing experience. No. And that all I can think then is that the, the lesson has to be making peace with, well, it's always going to be hard. It's always the process of making work and of following you know, whatever your passion is, it isn't easy. I mean, hopefully you love it. Hopefully there are parts of it that feel, you know, filled with ease and that just come and flow and all that. But there's almost something there about making peace with, you know, the pre- right. The present is what we have. Some imagined future where writing your book is easier is not, not probably not coming. <laughs> yeah, totally. We, it's like the, we have to get different parts of what we need from different parts of life. So yes. for, when I see clients, when I do my intake with a new client, one of the pieces of homework I give them after the intake is to do some writing where they consider and assess different parts of their life. And I ask them to think about their lives creatively, professionally, financially, spiritually, and in terms of relationships, intimacy, and community, so that I can get kind of a holistic overview of like what's going on in all these different realms, because they all touch each other, but they all need different things. And so we can't like we can't 
uh, fill up your spiritual interior just thinking about your professional life, we actually have to put focus over here. And we have to focus on money and your financial goals because we live in capitalism. But then you have to have community because that's a bigger resource than money and it's going to be longer lasting. So we have to deal with like all the, it's, it's just, we're holistic people with only 24 hours in a day. Right. Well, and I think that's starting to happen. That idea of prioritizing other parts of life and the way you feel. I know I, I at least in the people I follow, I'm seeing some easing up of the like girl boss hustle culture of, you know, make it happen and success is everything. And, um, so the lie of hard work. Thank you. Right. I mean, that's the other thing we'll do. The hardest work I've ever done was always for $7 an hour. Yeah. It didn't get me anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The hardest work I've done is for projects that will sit in a drawer forever and never see the light of day. Yeah. That hard work narrative. I mean, that's also really convenient for capitalism, right? Because we're keeping us all busy while the 1% makes all the money. Yes. Yeah, plenty of resources to go around, but if we're fighting for them and overworking for them, we'll never get around to organizing to have them released. Yeah, exactly. And that 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 hard work will then lead to that success without any understanding of privilege of of the ways in which the people we look at as successful have not necessarily gotten there just through hard work. So right. keeping that right. And, and you and I talked about how, how demoralizing it can be when you've been raised in a, in a educational system that teaches you that hard work is everything to then hit the real world with that work ethic, you know, best case scenario, you are a hard worker, you have goals, you go for them, you um, you know, are, have a realistic idea of what success looks like. And it's still, whatever you want to happen still doesn't happen and Mm -hmm. how demoralizing that can be. And that then capitalism turns around and puts that as a judgment call on you. Right. It gets individualized and internalized instead of like, it doesn't matter how fast you run. If you're running to first base and somebody else is running from third base already. Right. Right. The illusion, the illusion of any kind of equity and how people are getting started and when they begin their young adult lives. And I think that that is designed to make 99% of people feel like they're failing because yeah. if you feel like you're failing. I talked about this um, last week when I talked to my friend Aram, who's a psychologist, that we, if you feel like you're failing, that desperate feeling of there's something wrong with me and that's why I'm failing. And I am now vulnerable to being sold a bunch of crap um, that Mm -hmm. will make me better. We'll buy more, um, we'll buy more stuff, buy more stuff, blame it on, um, things that, you know, okay. If my body looked different, if I had a different car, if I had a, if I lived in a different place, you know, all these external factors and what you're talking about is that, the real good stuff is untouchable inside and these external things that capitalism wants to pick at are meaningless. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hi, kids. Buy the book. <laughs> kids, buy my book. It tells you that capitalism is me. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> well, so talking to you about death and having death acceptance. <laughs> totally. Um, that'll be the next book. <laughs> we'll collaborate on that one, Beth. That'll be, that'll be a bestseller. yeah um i I mean and then the way this all comes back to me to our ideas about magic and about manifestation and about kind of trusting the unknown i mean when i talk a lot early on in the book about having sort of non-linear understandings of time and of reality which sounds really esoteric right and when it comes to our careers it's actually not esoteric at all like they do not follow a linear path and so I wonder yeah how you talk to your clients about that thing that you know well which is look this meanders this goes in directions that you don't expect necessarily yeah Yeah. I talk a lot with my clients about seed planting that when they take all these different actions everything from applying to things to um building and investing in creative community to asking for mentorship to offering themselves to different projects they're planting seeds that then start to churn out in the universe and will come back to them in ways that they don't know when or how but it happens all the time. I just <laughs> talked to a client on Friday who, at my urging, reached out to a big curator in her country a year ago, and it sort of fizzled out into nowhere, and she felt very despondent about it. And then a year later, that curator said, would you like this residency? We just had an opening, this very prestigious residency. And so the client luckily could connect the dots of like, it didn't come out of nowhere. I planted the seed a long time ago, plus I made all this art, and that's what yielded this thing. But it's like, just planting seeds and then letting go of the outcome, letting go of the timeline, reminding the clients I work with that you, you have no control over the timeline of what happens when, but you have control over your part, your footwork, your behavior, and everything that you do, everything you contribute in the world, it starts to do something. It's like it starts churning outside of your knowledge and control, and things will come back to you then in the future as a result. And I see it all the time with all of my clients. Well, I think we think we need to control or else the thing isn't going to happen. That we need to have this very clear-cut path. And the times in my life when I've tried to control, you know, I gave myself a complete anxiety disorder when my first book came out because I decided that, you know, there wasn't enough promotion happening. So I had to take that into my own hands. And I had this sort of panicked idea around um, how it should be received, how many books I should sell, where it, you know, and come and literally made myself sick. Whereas mm-hmm. every lesson that was coming back to me was this, you, you don't need to control how this gets to people. You don't need to control who this gets to you've done yeah you've done that seed planting you've you made your the part thing. you wrote the book you, you wrote the book the world. Yeah. and your responsibility to that is to now kind of let it have its own life and it's yeah. hard because if you're an ambitious person at all 
Um, or even if you just like have a project that you really care about, you, it's very hard to let go. Like you're saying to plant these seeds and then be like, go with goddess little project. Mm. I don't know. I'm, you know, I, I'm done with you now. Oh, do I still have you? Yeah. It's, it's so hard to let go of the illusion of control. Right. In general. It's so hard to let go of the illusion of control and to realize like the more that we're grasping onto something, if you open your hands, there's nothing there. That the, where there is, and then to then put the focus back on where do you have power and influence? And it is often like on, it's on our behavior and our attitude and what we're, what we're doing for our own lives. And, you know, the funny thing about books, like this happens with writers a lot. It's, and of course it's not just, with the advent of social media, but it's definitely heightened over the past 10 years is this expectation that writers have to do so much to promote their own book. They're supposed to become marketing experts all of a sudden. And that once it comes out, it's like, well, now it's dead instead of no, 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 that's just the beginning of its life. I mean, most books like a people will come to them years later. It's has nothing to do with publication day or what happens in the first month but there's all this pressure of like well how does it sell in the first month and does it hit lists or all of this other bullshit but it's like your readers find the book in the meandering ways that we all find books and get books given to us and recommended to us it now has a life for hopefully met like dozens and dozens of years maybe hundreds of years who knows how many books do you read that are by people who died before the 21st century (laughs) right well, and the reward, hopefully, for that work is is then to get to do more work. You know, best case scenario, you've you've written a book, you've published a book. The reward, hopefully, is you get to write and publish another book. The reward isn't you are crowned queen of all writers of all time and the world bows down to you. You know, like, that's not... Because even if you hit the bestseller list, even if you, you know the movie is made who knows you know all these very exciting markers of success that um are great but are not the work and hopefully Mm -hmm. you're developing a relationship with the work and not uh a relationship with some idea of fame Mm um i mean this then for me this idea of seeds goes back to the way that I think about manifestation, um, which I have, I think through my career really changed my view of even like spell work and trying to do spell work and ceremony that calls in specific things um, from experience, looking at the things that I tried to call in that came and the ones that didn't, that I am so glad didn't. Um, And that's very much about giving up control and saying this or something better, right? And I feel like that's what you're talking about when you're planting those seeds is saying, okay, let me plant the seed of I would get to collaborate on someone with someone on, you know, writing a musical and just plant these seeds of, but I don't know what that looks like. And I'm not going to try to assume that I know what that looks like because maybe it's better than I could have imagined. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Your point about what spells can do 
and what any kind of magic practicing could do is I think one of the things is it asks us to consider what do you want? Like, what do you actually want? Not what do you think you should want or what other people want for you? And to get down to that quiet utterance takes focus and patience to actually determine like, what the hell do I want right now? Who am I now? And then to, to, to sort of like let it be known in different ways. And then that this or better releasing the idea that like, I know what's best, that actually there could be so much more in store for me. That's beyond what I could even imagine, which in my life has always been true. Like I imagined life could be compared to what it actually was, was always so limited. It was so limited compared to what the universe had in store for me. Right. And we're not taught, especially when we're young, we're not taught to listen to ourselves and listen to that inner voice where we might be able to find out what's important to us. What do we love? And if you want to talk about, you know, life's purpose, that's where that information is, is deep inside there. I mean, I also find that um, I'm really interested in the idea of evolution as sort of like discomfort, that the discomfort of having to, listen to the dark and light parts of ourselves that I think um, we're not taught how to sit with that and how to sit with how we really feel about things. Um, it, in order to, all right, now I'm going to go, <laughs> now I'm going to go macro witch on things in order to evolve as a species we have to do that listening because otherwise you're following some path that somebody else set for you. You're following some predetermined path that is not pushing any kind of boundaries. It's just what you think it should be. And there's no room for that good, juicy new stuff to come in because you're just doing what we've always done. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Like there's no place for like the fish to grow an arm because the fish is just (laughs) swimming in the water the way fish have always swam. It's like, well, what's new and innovative about this? But being new and innovative is makes us so vulnerable because it hasn't been, you know, it's much easier to do what's been done before. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And how do you, okay. So when you talk to your clients, how do you advise them around dealing with that inherent vulnerability that comes with being an artist, maybe making work that's really personal, that mm-hmm. is maybe doing something weird or, you know, innovative or, or you know, helping us along that evolutionary yeah. path towards something new. You want to show that to the world that is a very vulnerable position to put yourself in. Yeah. It's really vulnerable to be an artist, to go deep inside of yourself, to make things, to draw on your deep interior and make that manifest on the outside. And then to share it with anybody is a really profound ask. Right. And I'm just astounded that at artists willingness, their need and willingness to let it, to share it, to let it be seen and experienced. And, you know, depending on the artist, we have different strategies for how to build containers for that, how they can be vulnerable, but also have boundaries and feel protected. 
And some of it, it might be related to their relationship to social media and how much or how little they participate and what they show there. It's definitely in building community, having a lot of wonderful creative community to support one another. Um, For taking in tons of art, I think one thing that's really helpful is thinking about all the work you love, all the books and films and performance and paintings and sound art, everything you love was made by people who also did the vulnerable work and then were willing to to take the steps to get the resources and make the thing happen in the world so that other people could experience it. And they also, like you, whoever you artists are, they also felt really scared and vulnerable and like, maybe they thought it was a failure. This thing that you love, they right. thought was an utter failure because their brain told them it sucked or it didn't get the attention at its time that people told them it should. It's just really looking at your lineage. Cause all artists are born into this huge lineage across space and time in the past and future. And you are participating in this epic conversation that is moving the species forward, that's moving the culture forward all the time. Yeah. And so when an artist can sort of think out of like their one year micro view of where they are in place and time, but think about like a thousand years ago and a thousand years in the future. And remember that for an artist, I'll often tell them that there's only two people you have to impress with your work. And that's you as a teenager and you in 25 years. Those yes. are the people you're trying to impress and, and really show what you can do. Everybody else's noise. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing on their work. It only matters what you're doing. And how is that in relationship and comparison to what you have done and want to do? And what does teen right. you think about it? And that's a hard person to impress. And what does elder you think about it? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like if if I imagine my like 16 year old self impressed with my life, which she would be totally impressed. She might not tell me, but I'm like, oh, I'm doing fine. As long as like younger me is like, wow, your life sounds amazing. Then I can access a moment of like, oh yeah, my life is amazing. So for artists, a way to like deal with that vulnerability is just think about the people inside of them that they have been or going to be. And think about this large lineage, this huge lineage of artists that they're part of. Right. I think my internet keeps glitching. My internet sucks today for no reason. Oh, of course it does. Of course. Just because you need it to work. That's fine. Um, Yeah, I think all the time, especially when I'm uh, looking at something I've published, there's a Toni Morrison quote from an interview with her where she said all she... Someone said, to, you know, the person interviewing her said, um, you know, what do you think when you look at your your shelf of books you've published and these great works that have won all these awards and all these bestsellers? And she said, I all I see are mistakes. She just, <laughs> right. She just opens the book and all she sees are like, oh, oh she's totally. Just, Tony Morrison. The woman who delivered me Sula is yeah. like, Sula sucks. It's like cringing. <laughs> like, oh, I can't believe I wrote that sentence. I mean, that to me is so reassuring. There's yeah, no yeah. hierarchy of confidence. of, yeah. And that, that sort of, um, I talk about this too in the chapter on creativity a lot, that it's like, well, if it feels vulnerable and it feels embarrassing, so be it you you're okay mm-hmm. <laughs> you know if that's the price of admission to be part of this lineage that you're talking about of 
um, you know, artists laying their hearts and souls bare is maybe it does feel embarrassing and maybe let it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's, it is vulnerable. It can feel embarrassing, but maybe that's worth it. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. Embarrassment, feeling a cringe moment. It will never kill you. Right. Right. And it's maybe very normal. It's maybe not a sign that you are not supposed to be sharing your work. I think that's the thing that took me a while to realize it was that, the fact that I felt cringe about things was like a sign that you shouldn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, well, you're not the thing thing you cringe about your audience connects to and loves and it gives them a feeling of possibility in life. Well, that's absolutely what I have found is the stuff that I have written that I, that felt the most vulnerable and that I felt like, oh, I can never show this to anybody, you know, like tip topping away at my laptop being like, this will never see the light of day. That's the stuff that I get an email about that someone says this spoke to me so deeply because what's happening in those moments is you are connecting to that deep humanity self that has nothing to do with the outside. And that's hopefully what art can do for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I wonder, okay, I don't want to, I can talk to you all day and I don't, <laughs> don't want to keep you forever, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience of working with artists through the pandemic and, how what the vibe is has been and is now around sort of creative practice and sharing and career and ambition yeah I'm just sort of wondering like what what you're seeing right now in your clients and even for yourself around like how you're feeling about these issues Mm -hmm. um vibes were low and continue below for the past two and a half years. So if you're struggling out there as an artist, you're in the majority. Yeah. Um, in, on the interior and exterior. It was, my brain chemistry was definitely changed forever counseling people through the pandemic. I'm sure everybody in that helping professions or whatever kind of one-to-one work people do probably feel that way too. Yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of my clients... They experience so much isolation. Isolation is already a thing a lot of artists grapple with and is a big challenge for them because maybe their practice requires them to be alone. And once you're alone, it's hard to get out from under being alone. And because people had forced separation of community, people have a lot of fear or reluctance or forget how to like re-engage in community. And for some people, that is truly going out into the world and doing things. For other people, it's actually feeling emotionally connected. For example, my clients who do live performance of any kind, because they couldn't do it for so long, when they could again, they some of them told me they felt like they didn't have a desire anymore and that really scared them. 
Other people just felt totally dead inside because this very important thing that feeds them had been taken away for so long. Right. Um, And other people feel just so alienated from everybody else, including themselves. So I think it's isolation and alienation from the self and others that was the thing I heard the most of that alarmed me the most. Because other stuff is collective, like money problems, systemic problems, healthcare problems. We can't do anything about it that individually. We all have to work on that on Moss. Right. But like the alienation and isolation is a thing that I need to work with all of my clients individually on how to take steps to counter that constantly, how to turn isolation from isolation to solitude and from alienation to connected community. And I think that's going to be a long reparative process that will last the rest of my lifetime. Right. Right. How do you start? <laughs> yeah. How do you start? How do you start? I mean, a reason I loved your book so much is because a thing I focus on with all my clients is their spiritual interior. What helps them feel in the present, connected to themselves, other people, and something larger? And for a lot of my clients, they draw a blank. They're like, I don't know. I'm not religious. And I'm like, that's fine. We don't have to mean religion. Um, But I really focus with my clients on determining what brings them into the present. Nothing? Okay, let's deal with that first. What puts you in your body? Nothing? All right, let's deal with that. Um, Who are the people who are important to you? I can't really think of any. Like, we just start wherever they are to start with just what helps them feel connected to themselves, to be in the present, to feel connected to other people. Even if they're just glimpses of moments, that's great. We start there. But working on the strong spiritual interior where people feel that they know what to do in order to feel connected to themselves and in the present, I think makes everything else possible. And a big part of that for all my clients is their creative practice, their studio time, their practice, not all the time and not at first if they've been distanced to it from it in any way for a period of time, but tiptoeing back into a practice and having that, letting that do its spiritual work on the interior makes all the rest of life structures more manageable, I think. Right. Well, I think because the exterior was taken away in such an extreme way and we were all left with the interior, with the private, with the solitude, uh, any discomfort we had with that was amplified in this way that was very uncomfortable because you're, if you haven't made peace with your thoughts and you're left alone with your thoughts, you're in a lot of, it's really rough in there because you haven't done the work to, um, figure out how to work with it and how to accept the light with the dark. I mean, that's where I always go back to with my witchy practice is that it's like left alone with your thoughts. And, and if there is darkness there, if there is challenge there, looking at it, had on, you know, like letting yourself see it and talk to it directly rather than running from it. And we used to have a lot of ways to run from the more challenging parts of ourselves because the whole world was available to us. And when that's taken away, uh, it was like, a, it was forced, <laughs> forced isolation, forced, forced self, uh, um, what's the word? Uh, I, don't know. I'm, I have baby brain. I lost my words. <laughs> like, a, um, 
<laughs> nope, it's gone. Taking stock, taking stock in self, whether you want to do or not. <laughs> whether you consent or no. Whether you consent to your own <laughs> self, looking directly at your own self or not. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I appreciate that advice and I'm sure your clients do too. Um, I'm going to pull a couple cards for us. Yeah! From just from my the Vessel Oracle deck, which is my favorite Oracle deck. Oh, wow. Last time I pulled cards that were like very much for me. I'm going to state I would like to pull cards that are for me and Beth. <laughs> Last time I just ended up like giving myself a reading. Okay, let's see what we get here. Me and Beth, and for anybody who's listening to this now or later, let's see what we get. Ooh, oh my gosh. Okay, I pulled boundaries and release. <sighs> deep breath everybody <sighs> I mean that to me is sort of exactly what you were just talking about is creating these containers for ourselves that then you know creative or otherwise that then allow for release allow for the messiness making a safe space for what's messy and also what's good, right? That's the good stuff too. Yeah, what do you make of that, Beth? Boundaries and release. Well, I like to frame boundaries when I am trying to ask myself or talk to somebody about locating a boundary. Another way to say it that can open it, the answer up is what are you available for? Because that yeah. also helps you know what you're not available for. What am I available for? And release I mean as soon as you said as soon as I saw the release card I just I involuntarily had a big sigh of relief <laughs> release. right like what are we holding that yeah. I mean that's the other thing is you know I'm I wrote this book I worked on this book mostly over a year ago it takes so long to get something mm -hmm. published and so of course I'm sitting down and reading what I wrote being like oh shit that's good advice <laughs> <laughs> right isn't it horrible for people who write self-help and then they read it and they're like oh fuck do I have to like do what I tell other like, people to do oh, I spend no. all day telling people what to do and then when I'm like do I have to listen to this you, I need somebody else to tell me this I can't tell myself this <laughs> it's terrible this idea that but again I guess it just reinforces our sort of like non-linear healing non-linear learning that totally that you know, I would have possession of wisdom that then I would forget and need to come back to and remind myself of constantly so that this, yep. you know, anytime, right, we're given the cue of release and that, right, that breath you just took is just like, oh, yeah, release. <laughs> right. I get to let go of what I don't need. Hmm. Mm. That's all. I just, it's okay. I, I get frustrated with myself, of course, because I'm like, 
I want to be linear healing. I want to be like, great. Right. So a year ago, I figured out um, right. to like let go of expectations and to, yeah. um, you know, not worry about what anyone thinks of me. And I just remembered that for the rest of my life. And it's right. um, no longer a problem. If only it weren't a daily practice. My God, I wish like, right. you know, if I drank a glass of water yesterday, it has no bearing on today. And same thing with all of the spiritual lessons and healing lessons. It doesn't matter if I learned it yesterday. I might have to learn it again today, too. I mean, how exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but we don't have to do everything in one day. Right. Not all things happen in every day. Right. See, that's your... um, that's your very practical Capricorn logic coming in that I really, really appreciate about you because I feel like, you know, you have this great Capricorn perspective on these things of let's talk about there's 24 hours in a day. Let's talk about what you can actually get accomplished. Whereas when we talk about art, it's often so, you know, airy fairy and like, I don't know, just, you know, go in the studio and feel things. And you're like, you know, and let's hold best book up one more time, because if you want more about that and you want more like practical advice about um, your creative practice, make your art no matter what is the book you need. I love this book. I still love that cover so much. I think Chronicle did such a good design job. It's so gorgeous. It's so, like, just catches your eye. It looks good on the shelf. (laughs) It really does. I love how it looks. (laughs) Yeah, it looks so good. Are you writing something else for the people, Beth, or not right now? Sort of. Trying. Okay. Okay. You'll keep us posted. (laughs) No pressure. Um, Thank you so much for doing this. It makes me so happy just to see your face. So good to see you. Thank you for writing your book. My gosh, my my pleasure. Thank you so much for writing the book that you wrote. I'm so grateful. Thank you for being a part of it. I love, it makes me so happy that you're a part of it. Yay. Thanks to people who watched and listened and anyone watching later. Um, and yeah, and uh, Luminary comes out. Hold this one more time. Luminary comes out November eighth, and I'm doing um, these conversations every Sunday at three with all the cool people I talk to for this book. Um, literally, my favorite people uh, who are all very wise. Um, so we'll be back next week. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. Congratulations, Kate. Thank you so much. Bye, bye, everybody. Hey, this is Kate Skelsa. Thanks so much for listening to our conversation. If you want to know more, check out my website, kateskelsa.com. Hey, we're at the town.